Votes in favour, 383. So you're watching that uh, as it uh, happens. It looks like it's official. Ursula von der Leyen is to be the new uh, European Give Commission president. To the president who is here. The trust you placed in me is confidence you placed in Europe. From Radio for Europe, I'm Reid Standish, and this is Talking China in Eurasia. On today's episode, we're turning our attention to Brussels and the person trying to lead the response to one of the European Union's biggest challenges, China. Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine has brought back war to Europe and plunged the EU's six-decade peace project into jeopardy. Xi has repeatedly said his country is neutral in the conflict, but he is widely seen as a key ally and supporter of Russian President Vladimir Putin. China values the friendship between China and Russia. This has historical logic because we are neighbours and two large countries. At the same time, it's faced a rude awakening as China's economic rise has translated into growing influence on its borders, leaving leaders in Brussels and across Europe divided and struggling to meet a new competition. Europe has a problem, though, doesn't it, when in its dealings with China? Europe is not one thing, it's 27 countries. Perhaps no one symbolises this tension better than Ursula von der Leyen the European Commission president who's been at the centre of shaping the response for how to deal with China. The EU has announced an investigation into Chinese electric car makers. Uh, the European Union, they want to get the same access to Chinese markets as Chinese firms or also to get a better protection of intellectual property. EU Commission President Ursula von der Leyen has told European lawmakers that the EU needs to rethink its policy towards China. She spearheaded new initiatives, hardened Europe's tone and won important political battles. Dubbed the Global Gateway, it's intended to advance the infrastructure in emerging and developing countries. The EU plans to invest up to 300 billion euros in the development of modern infrastructure. The project is a key initiative in the EU's competition with China. The EU has shelved its efforts to win approval for a massive investment deal with China after tit-for-tat sanctions were imposed over Beijing's treatment of its Uyghur population. But is it too little too late? Joining me today is Rickard Josiak. He's ready for Europe's Europe editor and a longtime reporter in Brussels who's going to be explaining what's at stake for von der Leyen and the EU as they gear up to deal with China and whether they can answer the call in time. Rickard, it's a pleasure to have you here. How are you doing? I'm fine. Nice to be here. Yeah, all right. Well, good morning. I'm excited to dive into everything with you and pick your brain on all things Brussels. I know you're a longtime watcher of the EU. You spend all your time walking the halls, meeting with sources, um, and you really know how the block works and how it responds to crises around the world. So I think before we get started for this discussion on von der Leyen and her personal journey, let's get into what is the EU competing with China over and what does this competition look like? Essentially, you can take it down to battle of narratives. That's what it's really about. Think of China as a classical growing superpower. That's what it is. They want to rise up again after what they think are centuries of humiliation, usually at the hands of Western powers, and become the center of the international world order. For the European Union, on the other hand, they are the post-empire construction, right? They are trying to be a normative superpower mm -hmm. that don't really sort of go about in, in terms of, you know, threatening with armies and so on, but rather 
a sort of normative one, dealing with rules, regulations, trade, and so on. So it's very much an ultimate superpower versus very much a growing and, dare I say, aggressive new power rising up in the East. So I guess this this idea of, you know, the EU, maybe it's changing course, this tension between, you know, Europe as this this kind of rules-based uh, way of, of handling politics, right? You know, it's, in a way, I think that's quite embodied in someone like Ursula von der Leyen, right? Absolutely. So tell us a bit more about who she is and why her personal journey from, you know, dove to hawk on China is really key to understanding what the EU is up against and what it's trying to do. Well, I think in many ways she's the ultimate Brussels person, right? Uh -huh. So her father was uh, an EU official, a German EU official. She was actually born in Brussels. So she's immediately sort of multilingual, you know, perfectly fluent in, in French and in, in, in English and, of course, to native German and so on. And she made her career out of being a defence minister in Germany. And that is sort of itself a bit of a laugh, right? Because, I mean, there's a bit of a joke about the German army in general, at least before uh, the, uh, the war in Ukraine, right? I mean, the German army, well, what, what is it now, right? Soldiers are lacking heavy equipment, body armor, backpacks and even warm underwear. But in a sense, she was, um, when she was chosen by the leaders... Well, well maybe explain a little yeah. bit of that, because, I mean, the EU is this black it's box. Very I mean, I, I, I have to follow this for my work, and sometimes I am a little hazy on yeah. all the ins and outs of it. So, I mean, where, where does she fit in in this hierarchy? What's it like around her? How do things work there? So, about every five years, you change the guards in Brussels. So, uh, it, last time was in 2019, so next year it will be again. Mm -hmm. And there are let's say, three positions that EU leaders need to pick. One is the sort of foreign policy chief, uh, one is the commission president, and one is the council president. And that is a sort of typically sort of compromise European jigsaw where you want, for these three people, you want, you know, a, a gender balance, you want a north, south, west, east balance, you need a political balance, uh, and then you come up with names. So in the end, it's sort of like, it's rather random. So, so they needed a woman, they needed someone who was a bit more Northern European, let's mm -hmm. say, uh, and they needed someone who was sort of centre-right. Uh, so so that, they ended up with Ursula von der Leyen, the first woman female commission president ever, but also someone who had not been a premier before. She was defence minister, as I right. said. So that immediately was sort of like a, a question of like, how strong will this person be? She has had no executive power in a sense of the highest, on the highest level. She, she didn't rub shoulders with other prime ministers. And she was seen as a protege of who was the de facto leader of EU at the time, and Angela Merkel. Uh, the German Chancellor at the time. So it was very much someone who was a bit of an unknown quantity and many thought would be, well, you know, some sort of consensus builder. Mm -hmm. so, so, but I mean, so, so she's the former, Ger former German defense minister. It's 2019 is when she is selected, not elected. Um, there's obviously other high up people who are crafting foreign policy in Brussels. You have all the member states also with their views and things like that. So how do things start to happen? Like, how, how does von der Leyen take control of the reins? So that is the sort of interesting thing, because at the beginning, she came in at sort of the, the sort of tail end of the Trump era. So there were a lot of sort of ambivalence about a sort of transatlantic cooperation mm -hmm, at the time. Mm -hmm. But in the same time, she came in at the time where w she thought she would deal mainly with a sort of green deal, sort of green agenda, doing lots of sort of rather domestic things, right? And... Um, 
then some things happened that sort of forced her, in a sense, to take leadership. Um, first of all, Angela Merkel left. And suddenly there was a leadership vacuum in Europe. Of course, Macron, the French president, has tried to sort of strive into that. But it's in general, when you look at Europe today, there is a lack of, of leadership. So she stepped into that vacuum as well. I would also say that the elections in Germany that came then also opened up for her because her centre-right party came out of power. They're in opposition now. So she's not bound by Berlin, mm -hmm. by Berlin at the same time as people thought she would. So she sort of stepped in and become her own actor in a sense, right? And then there were, of course, I would say the big sort of breaking point in a sense was the, the COVID pandemic. WHO has been assessing this outbreak around the clock and we're deeply concerned both by the alarming levels of spread and severity and by the alarming levels of inaction. We have therefore made the assessment that COVID-19 can be characterized as a pandemic. And, and that is also something that is connected to China very much, because uh, at the beginning, and you remember this yourself, Reid, that uh, at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, which obviously started in China, everyone first was quite impressed by the Chinese, how they dealt with it, you know, in terms of, you know, the lockdowns, that they had sort of all the equipments that uh, simple things like protective mm -hmm. gear. And in Europe, at the very start of it, everyone was sort of shocked that we, we didn't have anything of that. We didn't produce these sort of things anymore. So that was a sort of like a shock to the system that Europe suddenly realized, or the EU suddenly realized that, hang on a bit, we are very isolated here and we need to sort of step up. And that's where she stepped up as well. So, I mean, that, that I think that sets the stage for von der Leyen, what she's facing and a bit of what that EU competition with, with China looks like. But I want to know, I think we need to go a little bit more of how we got to this point where we're at right now. So what is Brussels's relationship with China? What does that look like? When and why does this this wake up call that von der Leyen seems to be part of, you know, what sets that off? So basically two things. One is, first of all, that they realized, I think everyone in Europe realized that with the COVID pandemic, that uh, the supply chains mm -hmm. was simply too long, that the EU, in a sense, had outsourced way too much of critical stuff to China. COVID policy has resulted in lockdowns in the manufacturing hub of Shenzhen, as well as the world's largest port, Shanghai. Industrial production is slowing. Unemployment is on the rise. For the global economy, the supply chain will be particularly hard hit by the lockdowns. If we look at Shanghai, it has been closed for more than a month, although the number of cases has dropped significantly. The second wake-up call, of course, was um, the war in Ukraine. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, that was probably the icebreaker, in a sense, where the European Union realized that their worldview, which is a worldview of, listen, guys, we make trade, we trade, we have people-to-people -people contact, and we shall overcome. That didn't work, because they'd done that for, with Russia for a long time buying cheap gas, trying to engage with Russia, have trade deals, actually the same as with China. And they would have thought that, you know, well, you know, they would become like us. They will love the international system. The international system will work for them as well. Mm -hmm. But that wake up call on the 22nd of February, when Russia actually attacked in a full scale way Ukraine, was the ultimate, I would say, icebreaker, wake up call uh, and explosion within the minds of Europe that what they have worked on for decades in terms of, you know, if we trade, if we start having these sort of contacts with each other, we will sort of just, you know, have meetings instead mm -hmm. of killing each other. 
that just broke. That illusion was completely down the drain. Okay, well, I, I want to unpack a lot of that around the war in Ukraine, especially Europe and how it's navigated China and vice versa there. But I think before doing that, I mean, a big part of understanding perhaps, you know, what Europe's relationship is with China is also understanding Europe's relationship with the United States. And so, you know, as you said, von der Leyen, she comes in, it's on the tail end of Trump's first term. And, um, you know, take me through there. Biden is elected. How do things unfold both with the United States and then how does that affect things in relation to China? So, I mean, I, I, I still remember when when Biden was elected, you can almost sort of hear the sigh of relief in, in Europe at that time, in Brussels, basically, because they had had uh, four quite challenging years uh, in um, in the sort of transatlantic relationship it was even at the point when some diplomats in Brussels said let's have let's let Brussels be equidistant between Washington and Beijing just wrap your head around that for a moment when a, a European leader says well you know there's really no distance between for us when it comes to Beijing and and, and Washington uh, what a statement that was at the time so with Biden coming in again we sort of got back to this sort of old Cold War settlement again of that sort of international order that's been very dri driven by the West. You know, we there was talks again about, you know, uh, trade and not having sort of, uh, you know, attacking each other all the time, which was the case under Trump. Um, there was a, a, I would say that the transatlantic bond that we heard so much was in a sense stronger than ever because with Biden as well, him personally, was a, it's a very... European American president, right? Mm -hmm. Probably the last one, someone who's been shaped by the Cold War and by the sort of the, um, let us say the 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 feeling of um, what can I say of, of you know, even personal friendship and personal dedication that Americans of that generation have to Europe. Um, but he's probably the last one as well. Uh, after that, and we know that, I mean, the Americans are going to be more Pacific, mm -hmm. looking at especially China. So while Europe had this sort of like a, a sort of uh, falling in love again with Washington uh, and going back into far from being equidistant to Beijing, uh, there was still and there still is in Brussels a nervousness about what's going to happen uh, at the American elections next year, for example. Sure, sure, of course. And and I think right, it's also, I think, important to note within that period of that transition, you, you know, before Biden came in, there the EU had agreed to this this free trade deal with China, which yeah. seemed like, you know, a big surprise. Yeah. Okay, I think that was a lot of questions of, you know, those early Biden years are spent very much on repairing that alliance with Europe. Yeah. So, I mean, to, to summarize then, you know, when we're, we're talking about this, this competition developing between Europe and China, right? It's centered around trade, a lot of industrial policy, things like that. He Yadong from China's Commerce Ministry responding to Wednesday's announcement uh, by the EU Commission President Ursula von der Leyen that the Commission is to investigate Chinese state support for its electric vehicle industry. What I want to emphasize is that the investigation that the European Union plans to take is to protect its own industry in the name of fair competition. This is blatant protectionist behavior. It will have a negative impact on China-EU economic and trade relations. It obviously has uh, a bit of a dimension of this whole complex relationship with the United States that 
all the countries have. And then we also get into, I guess that leads us up to the war in Ukraine. And I think, but, you know, before that happens, right, there's there's a few things of perhaps you could say these are Chinese missteps that maybe mis misunderstand Brussels. We have this episode of, you know, sanctions where Brussels sanctions a bunch of Chinese officials related to the crackdown against Uyghurs and other minorities in Xinjiang, which then the Chinese then and they sanctioned a bunch of MEPs. That then leads to the trade deal that we were just discussing getting completely scrapped, put on ice. And it kind of, you know, if we're saying that von der Leyen is the hawk, you know, now she has, uh, you know, a nest maybe that uh, has some eggs in it for her to to fly with her. Yep. So I think that sets the stage then to come back to February 2022, uh, you know, Vladimir Putin launches his full-scale invasion of Ukraine. He brings large-scale warfare back to Europe. He pushes the EU into this form of upheaval that you're talking about. So that shatters perhaps what's left of a working relationship for Moscow and Europe. I really want to unpack how pivotal that shift is, you know, how pivotal is the war for how the bloc sees China, particularly as... You know, we've seen the Chinese walk this very careful line next to Moscow amid it. Yeah, that, I think that's the sort of the big disappointment in general in, in Brussels, right? That they thought that Russia would be more isolated on the world stage. Mm -hmm. I'd like to particularly speak to the esteemed Chinese representative. Let's join forces to convince Russia to respect the principles of the UN Charter. Because for the Europeans, this is a slam dunk case of a country invading another. Ukraine is a crime scene and the perpetrator is sitting in this very room. You know who you are. But for, I think, was the real wake up call in Europe, of course, was the, the reaction of, of the global south in general, where China is a, a de facto leader. Right. And the Chinese narrative is very much different. And we come back to what we talked about earlier about an alternative world order. The Europeans have so much to lose from this war. Uh, and it also senses this sort of change of the international rules, maybe going into something that is no international rules at all, uh, where might trumps right. Mm -hmm. And that, again, is sort of the fundamental uh, fear the primal fear, I would say, in Europe right now, because without that, Europe is essentially nothing. Is it then just a, a, a peninsula of Eurasia or is it something else? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that is the sort of fundamental questions that is sort of scaring people in, in, in the Brussels corridor uh, in the morning, basically, when they wake up. So, you know, taking this back to, to von der Leyen and her, her sort of journey... It seems, obviously, as you just unpacked there, the war is this big turning point. And if she was becoming slightly hawkish, it seems that this is the final the final uh, mark in, in, in the ground there. And I think that that, that really gets embodied with the speech that she makes um, earlier this year at the end of March in Brussels before she heads off on this trip to China with French President Macron to meet Xi Jinping, right? Yeah. So, I mean, unpack that a little. I mean, what, what's the headline from that speech? That speech was obviously uh, the main thing that came up from that was obviously her um, her the European stance on on uh, on, you know, on uh, China, uh, whereas the Americans talked about decoupling a lot. I believe it is neither viable nor in Europe's interest to 
decouple from China. Our re relations are not black or white, and our response cannot be either. Well, explain, explain this whole decoupling, de-risking thing. So, so, so that's the sort of thing. And she came then with sort of like a European version, which is de-risking, right? Mm -hmm. Having an open and frank exchange with our Chinese counterparts is a key part of what I would call the de-risking through diplomacy of our relations with China. Mm -hmm. And that means taking tough decisions when it comes to trade with China, starting with tariffs, forcing, trying to force the Chinese to let in European companies into Chinese markets for a level playing field, which is a big thing in Brussels that they don't like. It is, uh, for example, uh, you're talking about these sort of uh, carbon border tax as well, which is essentially a, a, a smart way of, of putting trade barriers to Chinese companies. It is about actually looking through critical infrastructure in Europe and see like actually are the Chinese owning all our harbors? Mm -hmm. uh, what about interconnectors? How how that being done, for example? So the decoupling is uh, in a sense that you should be more reliable on your own industrial base in pretty much everything. So you sort of cut ties with China on things that are important for your economy you need to get going. Energy, raw materials, etc. Uh, as I alluded to before, uh, America is much better equipped with that. Mm -hmm. The Europeans aren't. So what they're doing instead is to taking a slightly... It's a classical sort of European thing where it's sort of, well, we cannot really say decoupling because also, and this is something that's very important, right? So von der Leyen is a commission president, but she has to deal with member states as well. A strong European China policy relies on strong coordination between member states and EU institutions and a willingness to avoid the divide and conquer tactics that we know we may face. Member states are very different. Some of them have huge interest in China, both in terms of trading, but also in terms of Chinese tourists, especially Southern European states, right? That's a lot of money for countries that are sort of just coming out of, for example, the pandemic or, or, or the energy crisis right now. You know, Chinese money is important to get the economy going. I, I mean, that, that sounds like a, a massive question going forward. Yeah. Um, but I, I'm curious, you know, I remember when, when von der Leyen made that speech, uh, you and I were talking about it, you had mentioned, you, you heard a lot of echoes in how, what she was talking about, how to handle China, in what had been the status quo and old assumptions of how Europe should form a relationship with Russia before yep. its full-scale invasion of Ukraine. So, I mean, how, how are those things tied together? And I mean, is there a risk also that von der Leyen, as much as she is becoming hawkish, she's running into perhaps a trap of doing what was tried before, which, as you just said, didn't work. Yeah, there is a thing of that. And that's, of course, is that she's she's not the president of Europe, as I alluded to as well. There are other countries that have interests with China and she will have to watch that as well. Right. So that's one problem. Uh, but yeah, going back to that, that his her speech uh, ahead of going to China. I, I, I like that sort of in a sense, because it really reminded me of those speeches I heard a lot in Brussels, sort of like after let's say, well, after the, the Russian invasion of Georgia back in 2008, or, uh, you know, when Russia started to get engaged in Syria, when everyone sort of saw that Russia perhaps wasn't the, the cuddly bear that many in Brussels hoped for, but they still thought that they could convince 
this uh, bear with very long claws to perhaps cut the claws, you know, and become a friendly European player again. So that was the sort of same thing with China, that there's, there was a lot of tough rhetoric in this speech. But in the same time, she was, you know, alluding to, to sort of Chinese history. And the four great inventions of ancient China, the compass, gunpowder, papermaking, and printing, revolutionized world civilization. China can still take a different path. Uh, we can still potentially find, um, you know, some overlapping strategies. As you mentioned, especially sort of uh, green technology, right? I very much welcome the leading role China played in securing the historic Kunming-Montreal Global Biodiversity Agreement. China was also an active player in the global deal to protect biodiversity in international waters. She's forever the dove still, maybe now looking a bit more like a hawk, but there's still that olive branch in her mouth that maybe, maybe if, if you want to sit down, we can still talk. Because that is the thing about the Europeans, right? They don't have a massive army. They don't have the hard power. They have an economic power. They have a normative power. They can set standards. But if, no one, if someone is not playing by the rules, the Europeans tend to be confounded. So, so where do things, I mean, when you're walking the halls of Brussels, doing your job, chatting with folks there, I mean, do you get a sense that von der Leyen has, is being successful in, in moving that needle in the conversation? Is it really changing our, you know, as you're saying, you know, can this China hawk fly? But I mean, is she really, does she have a, a flock behind her now? More of a flock than she had perhaps when she started out. I mean, she, she's she's a quite a savvy political operator in a sense that uh, that she feels also how the needle is moving a bit. And I think with the COVID uh, pandemic and the war in Ukraine, I think many Europeans have woken up to the feeling that there is a it's a tough world out there, and uh, that Europeans simply will have to if not becoming more hawkish, rely a little bit more on themselves, pull themselves up a bit. And I think that sort of is uh, a feeling you, you have now, not only in sort of Central Eastern European countries that always have been a bit sort of nervous about China, but also, you know, in, in her own German party now, CDU, there is also a slight sort of hawkishness when it comes to China. The French are also worried more about China. So she's sort of way, sort of surfing on a wave that she discovered quite early on and would be quite effective. So will she be completely su successful in that? Well, that remains to be seen. There is this, you know, Europe is just so much more vulnerable compared to America anyway. So de-risking yes she will de-risk but it will come at a cost the question is can the europeans afford it so i mean when i'm hearing you talk here you're you're outlining all of the type of roadblocks that this shift on china is facing within the eu and it kind of brings me back to this this idea that you flicked at at the beginning which is that you know the eu was built out of post-war europe and not perhaps really made to handle something on like competing with an authoritarian government like China's on the world stage. So can von der Leyen make Europe adapt? Well, this is the sort of thing. Uh, I, 
before, I mean, Europe has always, or the EU has always had this idea of, yeah, but, you know, we, we should be internationalist. And they always, and everyone always sort of said, well, we should not just be in a large Switzerland. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that was sort of like a thing, we should absolutely not be in a large Switzerland. That would be the worst thing ever. But there is a sentiment, uh, I think you feel it very much in, in, in America with this sort of isolationism, and it's coming to, to, to Europe as well, right? Where they sort of said, now when I heard someone, a diplomat said, well, you know, we don't want to become, a, 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 you know, in a large Switzerland. And he sort of then said, well, thought, actually, sounds pretty good to me. What, that, that, what does fine. an enlarged Switzerland mean? That obviously means, in a sense, that sure, Europe will still, or the EU will still try to, to strike deals and that's actually quite indicative of of uh, von der Leyen's speech as well because she in in going to china that she so talks about you know or you know striking more trade deals with like-minded partners and that's exactly what they rush to do now deals with you know australia japan canada south korea maybe even mercosur the sort of trading block in in latin america so trade deals with like-minded yes but then actually and we see that happening already in Europe as a, as a result of the war in Ukraine, largely, that there are walls coming up. Um, Europe, I mean, the Europeans were always very sort of laughing at Trump's talk about, yeah, we're going to build a wall towards Mexico. Well, it's actually the Europeans that are building walls, building a wall between sort of Bulgaria and Turkey, for example, uh, building walls uh, basically towards Russia. Uh, that's coming up everywhere. It might not be walls, it might be barriers, right? But it's still the sort of same thing. And 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 all of Southern Europe. And in well, Southern right? Europe, of course, we have the Mediterranean, which is sort of like a, a, a an ocean or a sea that is more and more patrolled now because Europe has become much more hawkish and touchy about any sort of migration, right? So that is another thing. So uh, Europe is very much looking inwards now. You see that in political polls as well, with uh, populist, nativist parties polling well pretty much all over the continent, that, that this idea of, you know, being, trying to get, you know, create welfare for ourselves, but locking the rest of the world out to a large extent is very much something on the rise. Uh, so the whole enlarged Switzerland idea seems quite appealing now rather than being something that people scoffed at before as as being being a lack of ambition well i mean th that's a really to me a very interesting point to come to because you know we're talking about von der Leyen trying to lead the eu to compete with this you know country of 1.4 billion people this massive economy with these massive global ambitions yet then we're seeing that europe is you're saying wants to become a global switzerland I mean, it seems that that is not really set up to be able to compete with China in the long run. So, you know, as we start to look ahead about what comes next, what are the challenges all of this is going to face? You touched on the American election, which is obviously going to be a big factor. And there's a lot of question marks there. We have a war that has recently broken out between Israel and Gaza that could spill over into something wider in the Middle East. So... You know, we look ahead, what kind of new tests might these events pose for von der Leyen and how the EU approaches China? So two things here. Uh, most of the problems that Europe is facing is uh, going to mean that it's going to be busy solving those rather than to focusing on just the China threat. I think the, the two big issues for, let's say, the next five years, if von der Leyen gets re-elected, 
will be selected next year, which is quite likely if you look at it now, will be migration, or the threat of migration rather, and how to deal with, uh, let's say, the spillover of the Ukraine war, especially when it comes to European enlargement. Both are indirectly related to China. Um, the migration issue is fairly straightforward. Uh, what the Europeans are fearing the most from the conflict in the Middle East right now is a new migration wave similar to the one we saw in 2015 in the height of the Syrian war. And uh, right now, this year, we have seen uh, the highest number of, of uh, asylum seekers to Europe, to the EU, since that year, 2015. And that's already, I would say, that that is making most European leaders completely petrified. Because if this one crisis of all these crises that the EU has had in the last two decades, the migration crisis was the one that was closest to tearing the whole block apart. And uh, the whole idea, you might remember Merkel, the German Chancellor at the time, saying, oh, we'll schaffen das, we will, we'll fix it. Now the answer in Europe is nine. We, we will not fix that. Uh, so everyone is super nervous about any type of mag migratory pressure from anything that is non-European. With, with Ukrainians, it's a different story. So that is the one thing where the Chinese, if I was a Chinese leader, looking at how, how much this scares the European, how much political capital and how, uh, what a test to the European democracy this will be, I would look at having a... Uh, it would be very beneficial for me to have a long conflict in the Middle East that is sucking attention and time and, and uh, resources and political capital so the Europeans and the bloc become weakened and you can then pick and choose European partners that fits you, right? Hungary, prime example, but it can also be Italy in the future or France or whatever, you don't know. That's the first thing. Then we have, of course, the whole enlargement. Uh, the European Union will start accession talks early next year with countries like Ukraine and Moldova, something that would be inconceivable before. But here is this European idea as well, and we talked about enlarged Switzerland. Could there be a chance, and this goes to European thinking, that these, these slightly poorer countries but they had a great potential, Ukraine especially, can become the new China for Europe. Meaning that we talk about cutting supply chains. Well, the EU is spending a lot of money right now propping up Ukraine uh, to the tune of like you know 1.5 billion euros a month. You need to get back something from that. So why not, and this is the hopeful scenario for, for the EU, why not when the war ends, that Ukraine will become that economic engine, rebuilding of Ukraine that will benefit EU companies as well. So in a sense that many of the things that we might have uh, produced in China before can be produced in, in, in Ukraine, for example. Now that's very optimistic thinking, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but the idea is of course that um, what really made Germany extremely economically powerful was the 2004 EU enlargement that when eight Central Eastern European countries joined. Because suddenly you had this landmass around Germany where you could just invest, where you had, you know, cheap labor, but qualified labor. And that created uh, a huge economic boom for, for Germany. Can that be repeated with Ukraine? For example, for Poland or for Czech Republic or Slovakia or even Western European countries. That is the trick now. 
So I see a connection between sort of decoupling from uh, China or de-risking and instead reintegrating Ukraine into the bloc. That is a hopeful scenario. Okay, Ricard, it's been great speaking with you. Uh, thanks a lot for joining us today. Thank you. All right, that's all for this episode. I'm your host, Reed Standish. Katie Toth is our producer. Studio direction was done by Kaiza Alexar. Thanks to editors Carla Padret, Kathleen Moore, and Pete Baumgartner. And Radio Free Europe's journalists around the world that make podcasts like this possible. If you like this podcast, please share it and subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and be sure to check us out on YouTube. Finally, if you haven't already, subscribe to the Chining Eurasia newsletter, which goes out every other Wednesday. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.